Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Vessi Kapulian. <laughs> And she has 18 years of business experience that includes 14 years of commercial lending and four years of business, management, sales, and marketing. She also currently controls a portfolio of investor real estate properties across Florida, Tennessee, and Georgia, about 161 doors across six properties with $13 million of assets under management. And her mission is to help others attain their own financial freedom while at the same time providing a clean, safe, and pleasant home environment for her clients and tenants and improving the local communities she she invests in. So Vessi, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Eileen. Thank you so much for having me as a guest today. Thank you so much for being here, Vessi. Let's start off if you can share a little bit more about your background, Vessi, and how you got started with real estate. Absolutely. Happy to do that. I'm originally from Bulgaria, came to the United States many years ago. And one could argue that the seed of real estate investing was planted in me a while ago while living behind the Iron Curtain in Bulgaria, because there wasn't really a developed stock market. So oftentimes when people discussed investments, more often than not, they would refer to hard assets like real estate and precious metals. With that said, the seed of real estate didn't quite germinate on my end until 2017. I kind of followed the traditional path of going to school, joining a corporation and climbing that corporate ladder. So it wasn't until 2017 that I really got started investing in real estate. It was really the intent was to diversify away from the stock market and build a retirement nest egg. And I currently reside in Los Angeles, California. This is where I've been for the last several years. While I love living here, it's very challenging to find cash flowing real estate assets. And given that cash flow was my primary objective, of course, I like appreciation as well. But at this stage, focusing on cash flow, that naturally pushed me to start looking out of state. So I started with buying one single family home, then another and another and asked myself, well, that is going okay, but how do I scale this further? How do I scale this faster? And this naturally led to me looking into multifamily. I devoured a ton of content, invested in educational and coaching mastermind and really took action. And uh, happy to share that I made that transition officially earlier this year by closing on an 11-unit JV and a 145-unit syndication and looking to continue to grow the multifamily portfolio from here. Oh, awesome. Well, you are in Los Angeles, so not too far away from where I am also. <laughs> so it's very localized. But yes, when you talk about investing for cash flow, I totally understand what you mean because it was similar to me and my husband as well. When we first started, we were looking for cash flowing real estate and the market here just could not bid. There was so much competition. The cash flow wasn't there. And so we did something similar to you where we also looked outside of the state. Question for you is, how did you determine 
which state you wanted to focus on when moving out for investments outside of California. And then how did you get over that fear of the concept of not investing in your own backyard? That's a great question because definitely there was a lot of fear up until the closing date of that transaction. How I got started, I started joining various meetups and at the time, some of them were virtual. Now many are in person. There was one particular meetup where I was posting various webinars and one of the speakers was talking about how he invested in Memphis, Tennessee. So I reached out to him one day. He had his contact information and asked if he knows of someone or if he sells properties directly there. It turns out that he did. So that first property was a turnkey property. I did spend quite a bit of time researching the market, the streets, the crime levels, income levels, just so I can develop my own comfort. And at that time, I also flew in to the market to meet with the local property manager, get a better sense of the area by walking, driving around. And that's how I got over my initial fear. Like I said, it was very real up until I signed the closing papers and then it became a reality. But I'm really, really happy that I took that first step, no matter how big or small it was, I guess, at the time, because it really started the journey. And that's how it got started. So then after you completed your first deal within the single family space, and then you discovered multifamily. Talk to us a little bit about that transition that you made there. You mentioned some coaching and mentorships and all that stuff. How did you make that transition from the single family into multifamily? And what were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome? That's a great question. And while there are a lot of similarities and a lot of knowledge and skill set that you can transfer from residential to multifamily, there's still some unique aspects of it. I started devouring a ton of online content and joining various blogs, groups. And one common theme that emerged at the time or one common piece of advice that more experienced operators were sharing is if you want to grow faster or expedite your journey is to join a community of like-minded individuals in a coaching program. It's not required, I would say, for you to succeed in making the transition into multifamily, but I made the choice to join that mastermind or coaching program in an effort to not only accelerate my journey and further beef up my educational foundation, but also also to have access to that community of like-minded individuals, a network of people that I could eventually join hands with in order to get deals executed. So the educational component was one piece of the equation, but taking action and knowing your why and what drives you are equally just as important because it's not an easy process and I thought getting that first deal was a hurdle and given the market environment at the time, but in the current market environment, I think the bar is raised even higher. And it took underwriting nearly 200 deals before I closed on the first one and then the second followed just shortly after. That required a lot of tenacity and again, perseverance and knowing your goals and being truthful to your criteria. So It's not an easy process, but if you're determined to achieve the outcome, the success will follow. You know, in this space, there's so many different groups and programs and 
a lot of education out there that we could pull from, that we can learn. There's so much information online. How did you, like, what was important for you when you were looking for a group to join and be part of that community? Like, what was the key factors that really drew you to this particular group? That's a great question because when people ask me that or which coaching program to join, my first question is, what are your goals, right? And what is important to you? And that's how I started the discovery process. So for me, the size of the network was important. So I have breadth of contacts that I could reach out to. The vision, the values, uh, really the culture of the network was equally important. Of course, you don't really experience that until after you join, but you can get a sense of the people that you meet across on various online forums. And then the educational content and accessibility, because for me, being on the West Coast, I personally wanted to have access to the various coaching calls live versus listening to recordings. And unfortunately, with certain programs, those were more East Coast tailored, which quickly eliminated certain programs. So between the quality and the breadth of the network, the values, and then the content, those were the criteria and accessibility that it boiled down to. So it took you underwriting over 200 deals to be able to find your first one. What did you do in the beginning to start generating that deal flow? And how many on average do you think you were underwriting every week? Yes. So initially, I made the decision, uh, first of all, to focus on a market. And I think that's imperative because it helps you learn not only the market, but it quickly helps you distinguish a good deal from a bad deal, monitor the activity. So once I focused on the market, I really started reaching out to brokers. And that's how I started getting that initial deal flow having either those conversations or getting on their email lists. And in the beginning, I will say I was underwriting a lot of deals, frankly, also for the sake of underwriting and building the reps, the muscle memory on how to evaluate a deal. Even though certain deals that I came across, I knew were probably not pencil in and might not be as great, but I really wanted to master underwriting because I think that's essential, irrespective of which direction one decides to take, whether it's focusing on the acquisition, the capital raising, or the asset management. You need to be able to evaluate the deal on your own. And that's obviously not only for your own benefit, but you have a fiduciary responsibility towards investor. So yeah, that's how I got started reaching out to brokers, getting on the list. And then when I received the deal, when it didn't make sense for me to move forward, I would always provide feedback via email or phone on why the deal didn't work, whether it was the type of asset or location or rent upsize, whatever the particular of that deal was, I would share that with the broker versus simply pulling packages and staying silent on the other end of the communication. For the underwriting piece of it, like there is so much, if anybody was to look at an underwriting package, there are a lot of numbers, formulas, tabs. And so it gets pretty complicated after a little while. And like you said, it's just building up that muscle. When you first started your underwriting knowledge, for you, what was maybe like the top three most complex concepts that were hard for you to grasp as you were learning the underwriting piece of it? 
I think those really boil down to knowing your market and specifically learning the rental price points. Now I have a better feel for it because I've underwritten several deals. I've spoken to my property managers on several occasions, but those are critical and being able to determine if that rent upside really exists. Of course, the OMs from the brokers will tell you it it always exists and you'll see very optimistic projections. The other one is getting a good grasp on the expense side of the equation and particularly insurance and taxes and how to estimate that potential tax adjustment would be. There are some ways to do a quick back of the envelope calculation, but I really wanted to dive into how to properly assess that because that's one of your largest expenses and needs to be factored in. And then insurance, uh, learning the insurance rates. Now I have, again, a pretty good grasp on what that cost is per door. Although in my market, that is continually evolving and rapidly increasing. And unfortunately, with the recent hurricane, the premium increases will probably be even higher next year. But just getting that pulse on the market is really essential. And that's why one piece of advice I would provide to anyone is focus on the market because the more deals you look at in that market, the better familiar you will become over time with the peculiarities of that market so you can be more efficient but also more accurate in your underwriting. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Yeah, I think with insurance and taxes, especially nowadays, those are one of the two biggest areas that people tend to kind of overlook. For the taxes, you know, it's based off the different markets assess things a little bit differently. For your typical process, can you give a general overview of how you start looking at that and how you even start analyzing how it's being calculated? Absolutely. And so I'm very lucky because uh, my market is a disclosure state where you can find the purchase price and there's a lot of information online that you can access through the assessor website. And so what I usually look at is I look at the mill rate for that particular county, city, and for my particular market, usually it ranges anywhere from 75 to 85% off of the purchase price times the mill rate divided by 100 will give you a pretty good estimate of what that tax would be. Now, I say I'm lucky because, again, the assessor's office in this case provides also online calculators. And for the most part, I always like to check my own calculations to theirs, and they're pretty close, I would say. Um, So I go through that process. In certain markets, you may not have 
that much detail available to where you can see the historical rate of assessment and millage rate fluctuations and all of that. So in those cases, it's best to just call the local assessor's office and obtain the information that way. And for certain non-disclosure states or non-disclosure situations, that's a little bit more challenging. There may be other ways to uncover the tax information there. You may have to get a little bit more creative through public source information and whatnot. But at least in Florida, there's a lot of transparency with respect to the tax assessments. The 11-unit JV project, you said that you closed earlier this year. Can you share a little bit about the details on how you found that deal and what set you apart from the other, if there were any other potential buyers? Yeah, so it really came through building initially, I think, broker report because uh, this was not the first deal I had evaluated or looked at with that broker. But like I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I would always respond, even if the answer wasn't yes, I would usually give the reasons why it didn't work and kind of reiterate our criteria. So over time, I think that built a level of trust. And then once we got close to the numbers, I obtained the broker's feedback like, hey, we're not getting at the purchase price, but we're close enough. Is that a good enough level price point where we need to be considered even for the running within the LOI process? And so having his feedback was very helpful. And last but not least, having the boots on the ground. So one of my partners is in Florida. So he was able to go toward the property along with our property manager and the broker. So that gave, I would like to believe that gave him the confidence that we're not just kicking the tires, but we actually have a team in place who's there locally and committed to the asset. And also building the resume and really providing the story as to why we have ability to close by discussing other aspects of the transaction, like pre-vetted term sheet from a lender, pre-vetted insurance terms, basically everything that would give them the confidence that we could close, even though we were we may or may not have been the highest bidder in the running. So I think that confidence regarding ability to close is what effectively helped us win on that LOI. Yeah, sometimes it's what does the seller want and what's important to them and then trying to bridge that gap because not all the time, what we found also is not all the time is it the highest bidder who gets it, but it's the ability to close and making sure that you're able to commit to that and then follow through. Absolutely. And I hear that even more now from brokers that I speak with in the current market environment. There are obviously a lot of retrades happening with given the volatility in the markets. And so ability to follow through is even more important now than ever. So with the current market now, you're able to close on two deals earlier this year. And then with the current market today, how are you positioning yourself and your company to be able to sustain maybe a potential downturn coming up or even position yourself to be more competitive in the buying space as well? Mm -hmm. So with respect to the existing portfolio and positioning ourselves for a downturn, of course, it starts with the conservative underwriting. And I feel really good about the assets that we already have on the books, also having adequate reserves in addition to the cushion, and we are outperforming our projections. So from that perspective, I feel really 
good about it, but how is that changing our deal evaluation process? And it has changed. One, with the continuously increasing interest rates, and we can talk about that as well. But my view is those increases will continue, albeit at a smaller pace in 2023. Doing the sensitivity analysis is even more important nowadays. Budgeting for adequate reserves, capital reserves and operating reserves up front. I'm looking at a minimum of six months, right, of operating as well as six months reserves that will cover operating expenses and debt service. And being really more realistic about the rent growth assumptions and vacancy rates in a lot of markets, just in talking to fellow investors, but even in my own markets, we're seeing that pace of rent growth slowing down, which was to be expected, right? 20-30% of rent growth year over year is, is not sustainable, particularly in cases where wages haven't really kept up with that growth. So in a lot of markets, you're starting to hit that affordability gap. And in Florida, we'll see what happens with the recent rent control measures in Orange County, which is one of the largest in central Florida. And a lot of other counties are watching to see how that develops, because there has been a lot of pressure to introduce rent control measures there as well. But all of that factors into the rent growth assumptions, as well as vacancies, which are starting to increase as I model the assumptions. And of course, on the expense side, definitely, we talked about taxes, insurance premiums are rising quite a bit in Florida, and there's a host of other issues happening there, but being more realistic in those assumptions too. And uh, last but not least, the cap rate reversion, and that's happening faster than anyone expected. And Previously, when speaking with other investors, a lot of times people would budget 10 basis points year over year. Well, in Central Florida, the cap rates have already reversed to roughly 4.7 versus 3% last year, and assets are trading closer to the 5% level. So the 10% annual increase is not sufficient based on the current market. And again, given the pace of the interest rate increase, that is somewhat to be expected now. But of course, nobody could have forecasted that a year or so ago. But knowing what I know now, that's another adjustment I've made. And so all we know, that makes deals with strong numbers more difficult to find in the current market environment. But I do think it's important to stay active and continue looking so I'm still looking for deals, but it's it's just becoming more and more difficult for those to pencil in and then give the seller, right, and the broker that confidence that we'll be able to close without retrading. And certainly there are a lot of retrades happening right now. With the cap rate, you mentioned the reversion cap rates. Instead of the 10 basis points, what are you using nowadays? I'm looking at at least 20. And so the sub-market and the asset type would drive if I need to be even more conservative. And in terms of assets, looking at least at a five-year hold period, because again, I think the next two years or so will be more volatile, more turbulent in nature. So looking to weather that storm, if you will, and expand optionality on the exit side of the equation. And when I mention exit, making sure those exit strategies are fully vetted up front and starting with the, the exit in mind. So Vessi, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? 
Oh my goodness. In so many ways, it's given a whole other meaning because at the end of the day, I want to be able to live a life of purpose and significance. And real estate is a tool to accomplish that, being able to help others, add value to others, and at the same time, have that freedom of time for myself and my own family. There are different ways, of course, to accomplish that. But for me, real estate has definitely provided that path. And if there's one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be? I know this is probably a common answer, but it's very true in my case as well. I really wish I had started sooner. I really wish I had gotten over that fear. And whether it's buying that first single family home or house hacking, I would encourage people, get started. Of course, be thoughtful about it, but just get started because that's the one regret I have is not starting sooner. Would you have started back with single family first or multifamily first if you were to go back? That's a great question. I think I've learned a lot through the single family experience, but probably started with smaller multifamily, like five or six units and build up from there. And so Vessi, what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I would say it's taking action and staying true to your criteria and core beliefs and values. I know sometimes it may feel scary or overwhelming, especially when you said very optimistic or high goals, but the key is to get started and think about that first step that you take and then the second and the third. And before you know it, when you look back, you will be far along on your journey to success and financial freedom. Yeah, they say fall in love with the journey, not the destination. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, Vessi, where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? The easiest way to get in touch with me is through my website, DBA, D is in dream, B is in believe, A is in achieve, dbacapitalgroup.com. There is a ton of free content that I post there, as well as ways to contact me by phone, email, or even uh, having direct link to my calendar if people would like to schedule a call. Thank you so much for all of your time today, Vessi. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Eileen. It was a pleasure to be a guest. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. (laughs) And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.